Hi, I'm Joe McGuire. Welcome to another edition of the Closing Time Podcast. We're in a very shifting real estate market right now where we're still looking at really low inventory, but rates are up. And so I think now more than ever, if you're a buyer, you've got to be prepared. You've got to be ready to go. And Chris, the first thing I want to ask you about, especially for anybody who's literally a first-time home buyer, they've never been through the process, they're going to hear this from, from me. They're going to come and they're like, hey, we want to buy a house. And I'm going to ask them, have they been pre-qualified? I don't even know what that means technically. What's the difference between being pre-qualified and being pre-approved? Pre-approved. Is there a <clears throat> difference uh, or is that just talk? Oh, it's talk. It's more terminology. Pre a pre qual is kind of like just getting the generic information from somebody. Like, hey, are you working? Where do you work? How much do you think you make? Um, what is your debt situation? Where do you think your credit score is at? When you now compare that to a pre approval, is you're just doing a deeper dive. Yep. You know, you're collecting their income documents, whether that's W twos, pay stubs, their assets, bank statements, four hundred one k. Are they getting a gift from a family member? Um, if they're self-employed, we'll get their taxes so that we can run it through a, a program that we have to analyze our taxes to, again, at the end of the day, give us back a specific number that we're working with. If they have a trickier or stickier type of income scenario, what we'll do is we'll maybe do a verification of employment where they'll provide us an authorization form and we'll send that verification to their job, which is going to happen anyways when a loan is accepted or a, a contract is accepted, our processing team, they're going to do a verification of, of their employment. Details their start date, position, salary, hourly, OT, bonus, commissions, and it's going to give us our details. But sometimes we'll do that up front and do more due diligence. So the pre-approval is just doing more due diligence up front, doing their credit, seeing exactly where their scores are. People tend to think their score is a lot higher than it tends to be. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Um, and, and conversely, the other way, too, where you can see where they think their score is lower and it comes back higher. A lot of people, and, and, and rightly so, they use the services of a Credit Karma or my Discover credit card provides me a credit analysis. And what that is, it's just more of a soft review of your score, but you're, never you're not applying for credit compared to when you're getting approved to buy a house or getting approved to buy a car you're going to have a tri-merge. It's going to pull from the three bureaus, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion. You're going to get a score from each. And you always use the lower of the, I'm sorry, you always use the middle of the three scores. So if it's a, a solo person buying, they're going to have a middle score. If it's a husband and wife, each are going to get three scores. The husband's going to get a middle score. The, the wife's going to get a middle score. You always use the lower of the two middle scores. Again, a deeper dive compared to a soft monitoring program, whether it's, again, Credit Karma or a credit card service that's providing a score. And naturally, you're going to see the debts that they have, and we're going to see the payments that they have on those debts. So again, a deeper dive, income scenario, credit scenario, debt scenario, which basically leads to your debt-to-income ratio. When you have all that information, now you're running it through an automated underwriting program and then that's based, based on the scenario and the conversations that you've had with that buyer. You know, what type of house are they looking for? How much do they think they're looking to put down? Um, where's their comfortable payment? 
you know, it's it's funny too. You know, when we're looking in some cities, the taxes affect the price very 1, differently. Kind of explain that because sometimes people are like, like, oh, I want to look at Weathersfield and Glastonbury and. You know, they'll pick up a couple other places, and I'm like, well, the taxes here could be different. Going to be a lot higher. It's yeah. going to affect your payment. Just sort of explain why that is and, and how that works. Well, to kind of to start off, one of the, probably the most important question I ask somebody right off the bat is, I usually don't go like, hey, what's the sales price that you're looking for? Because it doesn't relate to a payment. So I'll ask them, where is a comfortable payment range that you want to be around? I don't want to be more than fifteen hundred. I don't want to be more than two thousand dollars, and I'll mention that. So that number allows us to work backwards. Now, going backwards, that's going to put us in a price point, but it's also going to depend upon how much are you looking to put down and the taxes. So, for example, let's just say we're using a hypothetical house in Weathersfield, and the purchase price is three hundred thousand. Now, the taxes could be eighty-four hundred a year, which is seven hundred dollars a month which we know that $700 a month is going to be included in the overall monthly mortgage payment. Right. And let's just say for hypothetical purposes, it's a $2,200 a month overall payment. So now you have that example house. They go to Portland. They find the same $300,000 house, but now the taxes there are six grand a year or $500 a month. So now you have the same house, same down payment obligation, whichever they're looking to do, but now you have a $200 less tax. So now instead of it being $2,200 a month, now it's $2,000 a month. So you can see a big difference, same house. Right. So I'll use an example where you might find a house that's a lower sales price, but the taxes could be higher and it's going to give us a payment or seesaw that and be like, okay, I found a house now that's higher but the taxes could be lower and it could be the same payment. So naturally, when you're talking to somebody, you want to make sure that they, they're sending you houses that have caught their attention so that they can see what that bottom line number, because their first thought is, oh, this house is 350. It's going to be more of a payment than this house at 325. And it might not be. Right. And, and, it's and, important or, to know. And the lower house could be more expensive. Could be The lower house could be higher than that higher price house because of the tax amount. So yes, taxes are a huge piece of the puzzle inside the over number. Now, as far as what a town does their mill rate and such, you know, that leads to what the tax amount is going to be. It varies on the town, which is kind of an unknown until you actually start sure. looking at numbers. Well, and again, it's important for people to pay attention to things like the mill rate. And, and you know, typically speaking, when I meet with a buyer, I'm like, you know, where are we looking to live? What's your ideal location? Right. And that's one of the considerations I'll generally bring up is like, you know, you're – and, and again, listen, the taxes that you're paying in Weathersfield, say, as opposed to a place like Meriden, I feel like there's a lot more bang for the buck. Could be. Right. Yeah, there's, so, again, I, 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 you know, I don't want I, what I mean to say is don't just look at the number and be like, that's higher, that's lower. Like, well, what are you getting right. for the tax dollars that you're spending? If you're getting something out of it, if the schools are good, right. then you're on to something. If, if that's not the case, high taxes – that sounds like a town that might be having some issues. And also, too, is, again, you should be looking at the sales price and you should be looking at the taxes. And obviously, the tax is going to play a part in the payment. What it also does, too, it affects your closing costs. Because naturally, when you're coming to the table, you're bringing your down payment obligation. But you're also bringing your transaction costs. And your transition transaction costs are going to consist of whomever your attorney is. So 
as a, as a processing team, we're going to be reaching out to the attorney's office to get their fees. We're also going to be setting up your escrow account, escrow for taxes and insurance that are inside your payment. But we also have to start up a cushion for future tax payments and insurance payments. So again, if your taxes are $700 a month compared to say $400 a month, your closing costs are going to be more because you're buying a house that has higher taxes when we're setting up that escrow cushion. And especially if you're closing like now in the in June, if you close in June, your first mortgage payment starts in August. You took ownership of the house in June. The July tax bill is due in about 95% of the towns in Connecticut. Property taxes are due twice a year. January 1st, that covers January through June 30th. July 1st, that covers July 1st through the end of the year. And you always pay taxes forward. So the homeowner who's selling you the house isn't obligated on the hook now for that July 1st tax bill that would normally come out of their escrow account. You are now the homeowner as of June 20th. You're closing June 20th. Your first payment starts August 1st. As I mentioned, who's paying the July tax bill? You are as the new buyer. So again, if you have a house that the taxes are $8,400 a year, $700 a month, you're obligated for half that $84, $4,200 as part of your closing cost. So you get a lot of people that would say like, man, your closing costs are really high as a lender. And I'm like, no, you're buying a house that has higher taxes. We don't control the attorney fees. We're not controlling the taxes. So a lot of the fees that are part of a closing cost of a purchase yep. are third-party fees. Third-party meaning the attorneys yep. setting up your escrow account. Any lender, their 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 main charge is going to be their what's called maybe their loan application fee, which generally is their underwriting and processing cost. Everything else, flood certification, they're going to make sure that you're not in a flood zone. Um, like so the, the attorney's costs and such. Yep. All right. Don't get too far ahead yet because before I even take them out to see a house, one of the questions I, I want to ask you as far as someone who's like, I'm ready to buy a house, ideally, you'd like them to be, to be working a 40-hour-a-week job. They've been there a couple of years, but I you know things are different it's nowadays. Different. What is the basic minimums sort of people should be looking at if they're like, I think I'd really like to buy a house. Where should they be at when they make that step? Well, they should be approved. You know, as you mentioned, so, you know, Joe, you send, you, you send um, Michael and Mary, new home owner or home buyers, they're looking to get approved. So we're gonna, I'm going to sit with them, kind of get to know their scenario. Where do you live now? Do you own? Are you selling a house and maybe using those proceeds for the new purchase? Are you keeping that house? Um, do you plan on having a renter in there? So you, you kind of get their, their residential history background. Next, you kind of go to their job situation, as you mentioned. Are they hourly? Are they salary? Are they self-employed? How long have you been at your job? Have you had a recent change to a new job? How long you been there? Because, again, that's going to play into factor into are you hourly? You get bonuses or overtime or commission. In order to use that overtime or bonus or commission, they need to have a two-year history. Okay. <clears throat> if they don't, we can only use what's considered their base salary, hourly wage, hourly wage, 40-hour work week, 52 weeks in a year, divided by 12 months, their hourly rate. 
no no base, uh, sorry, no bonus, no overtimes, no commissions. If their salary where their income is kind of vanilla, we know what they're making because they're $72,000 a year, $6,000 a month. Same thing for self-employed. So if they're just if they're a 1099 self-employed, we need to have a two-year history. If they don't have a two-year history, we can't use that self-employed income because they don't have two years of tax returns. So basically, you need two years of Schedule C tax returns to see how, and it's not the number one number. It's not the gross wages. It's line 31, which is the bottom line. Okay. And depending upon a program, you might be able to use one year of taxes, or you might have to use a 24-month average. Now, again, you're doing your credit, and you're seeing exactly where their scores are. You're seeing their debts. And again, you're kind of making sure that the income that's coming in to this potential new house is enough to support the debts that are going to be leaving the house, whether that's a solo buyer, it's husband, wife, it's boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever the whatever the applicants who are going on a loan. And then once you know that they're approved, you kind of go back to like, where do you want to be approved? Because there's a difference between what we can qualify for and where do we want to be qualified at? Hey, you might be able to afford a $500,000 house, but then you find out that payment's $3,000 a month. It's not where you want to be. Right. You want to be around $2,000. All right, well then, I'm not going to write you a pre-approval letter for $500,000. We might do it for 400000 for example. And then giving you confirmation as the, the realtor to say, you can take Mike and Mary out now. They want to stay in a price point of three fifty to 400000 That keeps them in their comfortable payment range. They're putting 10% down, whether that's from a sale of the home or coming from checking savings, 401k, a gift, maybe a combination of all those above. Let's say Mike and Mary don't own, they're renting, they're out of month to month, so they'll get out of it when they get out of it. So they have nothing to nothing to sell here, right? They're just looking to buy. Um, let's say uh, her credit score is like a 700, but Mike, Mike's rocking like a 515, right? He's got a good job now, and he's making really good money, but his credit score is awful. What do you advise here? Mike can't go on a loan. Okay. He would need to have a score at a certain point to be able to be eligible on a loan. So technically, he's kind of invisible. Um, that income can't be used. So in this situation, you hope that she can do the loan in her name solely by herself. If there are any joint debts, like say they have a joint car loan, that car loan still has to go against her debt-to-income ratio. <clears throat> Other than that, we would only be knocking her for her debts, her debts or joint accounts that they have. And if her income is enough to support the transaction, then we just go that direction. Uh, but we just don't know who he is. Now, sometimes in a situation like that where we know that somebody who was expected to go on a loan can't go on the loan. Now, maybe this is a part of the conversation I have initially. And they might have said, yeah, you know what, Mike's credit, we're not really sure where it's going to be. But... We have the potential, and this is Mary telling me, saying, my dad is willing to co-sign for me. N knowing that he has good credit, just like I do, he's got a great job, got very minimal debt. He's willing to co-sign for us. He's not going to live in a house, so he's a non-occupying co-signer, family member. He's got to be a family member. That he's going to co-sign with me, father-daughter, knowing that it strengthens back the file 
knowing that Mike does have income. Right. You know, coming into the household, it's just we can't put him on a loan. So that would be like a conversation to say, do you have a do you have somebody that can co-sign acting as he's Michael, you know, in that way. What if Michael's also a veteran? So okay, so that's a conversation that you would have first off to find out and most likely they'll they'll tell you that we're a veteran, one of us is a veteran because a great program is the VA program which is 100% financing. There's no mortgage insurance. Again, he would have to have a qualifiable credit score to allow him to stay on the loan. Speak English for a minute. You just said basically no down payment and no PMI. Correct. Okay. Because normally yeah. a program that you do not put 20% down, a conventional program, you're going to carry mortgage insurance. So that's your your overall payment is going to be the principal, the interest, your taxes, your home insurance, and mortgage insurance. When you put 20% down... You do not carry mortgage insurance because you lessen the risk for banks and lenders and investors and credit, you know the, the the people in the secondary market to say yep. you got skin in the game. When you don't have, I'm sorry, when you put less than twenty, their feeling is we need to protect ourselves a little bit by having this mortgage insurance on there. God forbid if something was to happen down the road, that they they add this mortgage insurance into your payment. It's a monthly payment, and again that is based on the loan scenario's risk, their credit score, how much are they putting down, their debt-to-income ratio. So if you have great credit, you're putting 5% down, and your debt-to-income ratio is low, that mortgage calculation might, again, might work out to be a $50 a month payment, very small. If you have like a 680 credit score, putting 3% down, and you have a higher debt to income ratio it might calculate to be $120 a month. Okay. So it's all like risk layered, which is kind of interest rate pricing for conventional when you're talking about interest rates, same thing for mortgage insurance. Now let's back up. VA. Whether your score is 660 or 760, you don't have mortgage and, and again, VA 100% financing, also meaning no money down, 0% finance, 0% down. You don't carry a mortgage insurance. So the huge perk of the VA program for veterans, and rightly so, is, again, keep money in your pocket yep. and benefiting you by having a little bit lower of a payment <coughs> because you don't have that mortgage insurance. <coughs> right? It chokes you up, right? It's like a great program. <laughs> it really does. You know, thank, thank you for the service. You know, it's the least we can do. Right. I get emotional, too. I was trying so hard not to lose it there. Ugh. And you do those VA loans, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So cool. All right. So we sort of got the the layout here, and and now they come to see me. Yep. And now we're gonna go find them a house, and we put the offer in. The offer gets accepted. I'm sending you a copy of this thing now. You have the contract in hand. Yep. Uh, if they've already got an attorney, uh, we're going to send them a copy as well so we can all sort of get the process going. I'm going to get the home inspection set up and some other things. Meanwhile, you're going to be asking them for documents. A lot of documents. Yeah. Oh, that happened sooner. Even sooner than that. Oh, yeah. All right. So uh, here's what I kind of wanted to talk about just for a minute is what's the layout of documents? What things should they maybe have aside where it's like Chris is going to want this, this, and this? Just have it ready so you're not searching for it because 
and this happens a lot. I'm I'm sure I, yeah. I'm sure you don't want to throw anybody under the bus here, but where we're waiting on documents, yep. and there's a deadline, whether it's for a rate or it's for a you know um, a commitment, yeah. Um, and so you know when we're like get these documents back to the mortgage guy in a timely manner, we're serious because there there are ramifications. So again, my thought is if they already kind of know what documents they should have sort of set aside, what what are they going to need to give you? Yeah, so initially in the beginning when we're having the conversation, again, going over their scenario, like where do you live, where do you work, I'm also laying the groundwork of as fast as you possibly can, you're going to want to get me your two years of W-2s, potentially two years of federal, not state, federal tax returns, and I'll only really ask for those if they're self-employed. If they're a regular salaried pay stub W-2 employee, I'm not going to ask for tax returns. Eliminate the documentation. <clears throat> the only time I would ask a non-self-employed person for their tax returns is if they maybe own a, an investment property because we might be able to use that rental income that they have on another home that they own that they yeah. don't live in, <clears throat> and, we, and we're going to want to look at their Schedule E because that lays out their rent, how they um, claim their rental income on their taxes. But most often, not non-self-employed people, W-2s, pay stubs, um, a month or two months of their funds, bank statements, maybe a quarterly 401k. If they're getting a gift from a family member, we know eventually that paper trail of money is going to go from the donor, the gifter, into their account. Not so much that we document up front. Let's tap the brakes for a second because you brought up a really – Another potential halt in the procedure, gift money. Gift money is fine. You can get a gift from a family member. Yeah. However, you're going to want to talk to this guy first. You got to talk to your mortgage guy because there's a gift letter and there's a way to do this the, the right trail. way. Because if you don't, what happens to the gift money? So... Any, any type of deposit that you get into your personal bank account needs to be paper trail, needs to be documented. So we get your bank statement, and we see that there's a $10,000 deposited on what is June 6th. The underwriter or the processing team is going to be like, well, you know, where did that $10,000 come from? Oh, it was cash. I had it in my mail. I had it in my uh, shoebox yeah. or under my mattress, you know, yeah. as we know. That can't be used because it, there's no way to source it. Now, if you say I sold a car, okay, bill of sale. Uh, maybe the, the the new purchaser of the car had, um, like I said, bill of sale, receipt, all that kind of st transfer of title, all yep. that kind of stuff. Okay, right, yep. So we're able to. So that's a paper trailing of the new buyer gave you ten thousand dollars. Now, hopefully, if you're doing something like that, you'd have them write a check, because then you can get the copy of the check. So again, conversation: Where are you getting funds to buy this house? Checking, savings. I'm going to sell a car. Or whatever, or getting again, getting a gift. So now we go back. Ten thousand dollars deposited today. Where did that money come from? It was a gift for my family. Okay. So again, we are going to get a provide a gift letter, and we need to paper trail point A, the gifter or the donor, into point B, the buyer. So we're gonna again provide them a gift letter where the buyer and the donor will fill out this gift letter. We're going to get a 30-day bank statement from the donor. We're going to see that money leaving their account. Because, again, they can't provide cash. They can't, they can't 
deposit cash into their account and then have that cash leave and going into the buyer's account. So that's why you get a 30-day statement. So you're going to get a 30-day statement of the donor showing the $10,000 leaving their account. They'll probably get a withdrawal check. So they're going to make a copy of that withdrawal check, and then the buyer will then deposit it into their bank account. And now we see that post, and now you can paper trail the money. A little easier if they both, say, for instance, have TD Bank bank statements. The, the family member, the donor, and the buyer, then it'll be a transfer. And we would see the money leaving, transferred from one, and going into the other one. You just kind of, you're eliminating that withdraw check. I don't want to ask you how to commit bank fraud, but say I did have a big pile of $5,000 buried in my yard. I could conceivably give that to my mom 45 days out, have her put it in her account, and then give me a gift letter 15 days later, that 15 days later, and then it all looks like it's on the up and so, up. So there's a couple of roundabout way of this, and this is being recorded? Yeah. No. <laughs> so somebody, so, so someone, because there's a lot of times people say, I have cash. How, how can we go about me utilizing that cash? One way is getting that money into your account ASAP. That has to sit in your account for at least 60 days, which means we've got to kind of put this on hold because by the time I start asking you for bank statements, I don't want to see that deposit. Right. So if they deposit that money on May 30th, June, July, I need to get away from it. I don't want to see that deposit. You know, so maybe we pick this back up in August so I can get your June statement. I get your July statement. And now your money, your, your account on May 29th that had $1,000 in it on May 30th now has $11,000 in it. But now June 1st all the way through June 31st, it looks like you've always had $11,000 in there. That's one way. The other way is you have, you know, X dollars in your house somewhere, shoebox, backyard, we know we can't use it because it can't be deposited. So you're like, well, you know what? My father, my mom, my grandmother is going to gift us $20,000. I would say, can somebody gift you money? So then we would paper trail that money being gifted. Again, we'll say $10,000. You close on the house. So again, we're going to go through that gift process of the, the family member donating, gifting the money. We see it going into your account. Looks like now you have sufficient funds for closing. Loan goes through its normal process. You close, signing day, you close on all the documents, you get the keys, you're in your house. You say, Grandma, Pops, Dad, uh, Mom, thank you so much. You give them, you give them the money. Yep. You give them the money back. Yeah, just a little clarification, by the way. The gift letter basically uh, is... It means it's a gift. It's not a debt. It's right. It's not something that has to be paid back. And that's the gift. important part of this gift letter is that it is a gift because uh, the whole idea of the gift is that it's not a lien, right? Which is what the mortgage is, a lien, right. and so we don't want it's a other true gift. liens. It's right. a true gift. Okay. They're they're providing their son or daughter, because most often not that's that's what's happening. The a parent or a grandparent is providing someone younger who doesn't maybe have established funds to make that purchase. And maybe that money was allotted for them to go to college, and they chose not to go to college. So now the family member, the mom, the dad, the grandma, the grandpa, whatever, has this money that they've you know accumulated over the years to maybe do a wedding or, or college that will we'll help you now use it in place to buy the house. Yep. So it's a true gift. 
Here's another scenario I get, and I, I'm, I'm, it's a specific story. I'm going to only tell part of it because it's important. But uh, I was working with this couple when I first got into real estate, and they had a subprime loan that I helped them get out of, and it took like a year for that to happen. So I get her approved uh, or pre-qualified, and we're starting to look at houses, and I told her, do me a favor. No big purchases. And later that afternoon, she texted me and asked me if she could buy a diamond. And without even asking if it was in a ring or if it was a giant ring, I just said, no, we've talked about this. Yeah. What is the limit on what people should buy? Again, right, we want to stay away from... A new car purchase, I've had that happen, yeah. and that was only at a necessity where we don't want you to buy a new car while you're buying a house, right. ideally. So what are what are some of the no-nos that they shouldn't be doing here? Well, so with anybody that I'm, I'm speaking with, we have like a do's and don'ts flyer. So send, send that along to the, to the client, to the customer, to the buyer, so that they have an idea of, like you said, don't make any big purchases. If you need to, well, let's run it by me first right. to make sure that, yeah, you know what? You can buy that new car that's going to maybe have like a $300 or $400 payment. Yeah, your income is good enough to support that new debt. Well, here's a comment. Let's go back for a second. Is how would you know? You've already ran my credit. At the end of every transaction, the processing team is always going to do a soft review of your credit. It's not affecting your score. It's only seeing is, hey, are there any new debts? that have appeared on your credit that could adversely affect the transaction where we would see a $304, $300 or $400 payment. Be like, Oh my God, this just took you above the threshold of what your income can take on. You can't buy this house. So if you are, if you do need to make a transaction, buying a car, maybe you went to Raymore and Flanagan, no pitches to Raymore and Flanagan here, but you go to Raymore and Flanagan and you buy $5,000 worth of furniture. And now yeah. we see that because you open up a charge card and like, okay, well, how much is that monthly payment going to cost you? $100 a month? Okay. So any type of any type of transaction, new purchase, we're going to want to make sure that you can take it on. And if it's no problem, then it's no problem. That's a big one too, where people want to buy the furniture for the closing, right? We get it. Again, yeah. My whole thing with my clients is, and yet still five, six times I can think of, they did it anyway. I try to keep the line. If you have any questions, I know, look, you don't understand this like we do. Right. So if you have any questions, ask us. There's usually ways to do things. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah, There's the, the right way to do it. And so if you talk to us, again, generally speaking, we can figure out what, what it is that you have to do. Generally, the two common things, like I said, is... You know, on that do's and don'ts is don't make any major purchases. And the other one is, can I change my job? You know, and, you know, maybe they get a promotion or, or, or they have the opportunity to get like a promotion, a different job. Yeah. So, again, there are steps to go over with that if that comes into play. You know, like when's your start date? You know, are you salary or hourly? You know, preferably salary, because, again, we know your income is your income compared to like, no, I'm hourly, but I'm going to be getting a a lot of overtime, like, well, we can't use that overtime, you know? So, you know, when is a start date? What type of income are you, is it the same type of work, you know, are you transitioning to? So those are usually the two common things of the do's and don'ts. 
preferably don't change your job, you know, if, if all best possible, you know, and then like the whole major purchases and such like that. I know this is super important because I recently heard this ruin a transaction of a colleague of mine. Don't quit your job the day of the closing. Correct. You're not getting the house. Right. Because with again, at the end of the at the end of the transaction, we're the processing team is going to do a final verification of employment, just like we do at the beginning. We got to verify that the job that's on the loan application. You work where you're working, like you told me. And during the pandemic, 2020 and 2021, we were all, we were probably doing like five verifications because people were just common, you know, constantly losing their jobs or whatever, going on furlough or whatever. So there was one in the beginning, like maybe one in the middle, and then, and we always are going to do one at the at, at the end, at the final, to make sure that you're still at your job, nothing has changed with your income. So they're going to do a final verification. And that could be weird and wonky, too, if someone's moving out of state, leaving a job, and starting a new job. So we're going to make sure, because a lot of people, especially now, have the ability to work from home. So you have a person from New York or Massachusetts or Rhode Island moving to Connecticut. On that verification, we're going to make sure that does this person have the ability to work from home. Maybe they've always worked from home in New York or Mass or Rhode Island, and they're, you know, nothing's really changing. We just got to confirm that because an underwriter is always going to look at, like, you know, you lived in Boston, and now you're moving to Trumbull. Well, it's probably about a three-hour ride. You're not commuting, you know? Mm-hmm. So they're going to confirm, like, oh, you're in sales or you have the, you're an underwriter or whatever, or whatever type of job, but you have the ability to work from home, and that just gets, that gets confirmed in a situation like that to provide an underwriter the reassurance and the comfort level of underwriting a file to say, okay, that makes sense. They're not going to be commuting, which, you know, kind of affects, you know, their, um, their ability to get the loan. Okay. So as we're rolling through the process here, right, they're going, they're getting you the paperwork, the W-2s, the pay stubs and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm out there, I'm home inspecting. You have the approval. We're getting all that stuff. Now, we're talking about commitment, say, are we still doing 21 to 30 days? We're doing 30 to 45 days. I, so, okay, now we're, now we're in process. Uh, we got, like I said, you got the signed contract. I'm able to order my mortgage disclosures that the buyers are able to electronically sign. And now we're, we're in process. And, like, this is when the inspection parts are taking place. Now, when you're drawing up that contract to get, you know, get officially signed by buyers and sellers, generally the rule of thumb that I kind of have the communication with you, the real estate agent, is to say 30-day commitment, 45-day closing. You'll probably get the commitment letter before 30 days. And if we have the ability to close before 45 days and all parties agree, selling, buying side and selling side, and we can move it up, then we'll move it up. I'd rather have that than go the other direction and try to make it everything unicorns and lollipops and you know balloons and say, commitment, 12 days, closing, 25 days, and then none of them are met. Yeah. You know, because then it looks like it makes you look like a bad guy. What is it? Uh under promise and over deliver yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'd rather stretch out the dates with the ability to back it up and then everybody's happy because you're able to close a little sooner. Um, again, and that all depends upon, you know, the buyers. You right. Know, how how are they with getting documents back? 
how fast are there any inspection issues? How fast can we get the appraiser appraisal ordered? And then how fast can that appraiser schedule with the listing agent to get that appointment done? And again, making sure that there's no appraisal issues. So as long as everything goes smooth, yep. yeah, could you do a closing in less than 30 days? Sure. You don't like promising that because you just don't know some unforeseen stuff that come up. That would be something that we would consult on before we got there. Yeah. And it would be more right out of need than yeah. at, a, at a leisure sake. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And again, we always have the option of trying. And again, it does it does really depend on whether they get that stuff back to you quicker. Because usually the first thing that other agent's going to ask me, Chris, is any chance we can close this thing a little earlier? They always They're will. always going to ask they that. With their paychecks. And we're always going to try to make that happen for yep. everybody. Um, but again, it's paramount that they that they get those documents. I'm glad we talked about it. Appraisal. Now they have to pay for the the appraisal up front like an inspection okay yep uh they're they're a third party so we don't necessarily quote unquote deal with inspections we deal with the appraisal we're there to make sure that the value of the property is matching or or hopefully more than the accepted sales price it's disclosed as a cost because it is a cost that the buyer has to pay for up front so it's disclosed now once the appraisal is done we get the paid invoice when you get to the closing table that appraisal cost goes to zero because they, were, they prepaid it up front yeah but it has to be disclosed because technically it's a buyer cost um so they're gonna um they do the appraisal um like i said hopefully it ma- at least matches the contracted sales price or or maybe it's more obviously it's a it's a little bit of a good environment right now where we're seeing yeah. uh, some some stuff with appraisals. I just did my continuing ed, and uh, I took it on that being one of the uh, the yeah. appraisals part. And I learned something I didn't know before. Number one, you're not supposed to give the appraiser comps. We're not. The realtor. No. I did not know that. No, because, I, I, again, you would know more about this. Um as, well, so as a listing agent, you probably are doing comp search to make sure that you're pricing it accordingly. Right. You know, and now maybe as a buyer agent, and I know it's, you know, it's, you want to do your due diligence to make sure like, yeah, you know, that's a legitimate sales price because I'm finding comps to match that, you know, and as we know now, people are going in, you know, higher than the listing price because you got multiple bids that are going in. You want to strengthen your offer. And sometimes the appraisal doesn't come in at that, you know, but sometimes the buyer will have what I guess it's called an appraisal gap coverage. Yeah. So they're willing to cover up to maybe a certain dollar amount if by chance it does not appraise, you know, to a certain point. We're also, again, just in having refreshed my memory, I'm sure I've always known this, but sometimes the realtor will be like, sure would be nice if this came out to the sales price. Wink, wink. Yeah. We're not supposed to do that either. So I have no communication right, with an appraiser. Right, and it, it used to be different, and that, would reach that's out. sort of the new rules where like, yeah. we want to make sure third parties are truly right. independent third parties. Contrary to what people think, we don't pay, we don't pay appraisers. Right. They don't work for us. They work in conjunction with us. We have an earning lender is going to have an appraisal order department where they're basically uh, taking the order, 
submitting it out for an appraiser to accept it, whoever, whatever appraiser is in our database. And I guess in a way it's kind of first come first serve. I kind of, maybe it's Rob Robin, but an appraiser is going to accept it. And that appraiser then will con- set, contact the listing agent to then set up that appointment. But nobody, like, I don't even know who the appraiser is until we get the report back right, and yeah. say, oh, it was John Smith Appraisal Company that handled this. And if by chance it comes back where there needs to be some negotiations or some reconsideration of values, that's the time where maybe you and I, in conjunction with the listing agent, to say, hey, we came back $10,000 light of the sales price. Here are the comps that are on the report. Are there any other comps that maybe the, maybe the appraiser missed? You know, maybe, maybe it happens. Can we provide some other supporting comps to maybe increase that $10,000 to maybe, can we get another 5,000 or can we get it to the equal of the sales, sales contract? Right. So that's working all together to try to maybe get some additional comps where we then can potentially submit a reconsideration of that lower value. Sometimes it's a, a yes, we can, we, it provides us. And sometimes it's no, the comps that they have are sufficient. It's funny because a lot of the times in those situations, the client wants you to sort of push it through when it's like, but the value's not there. We're trying Do to protect you. you understand that? Right. Not only protecting the bank and the investment, and but you the like buyer. that. The value right. isn't there. Uh, you might you, love the house. Right. But we're here to also protect you um, because you might be buying a house that's not that value. you know. And at the end of the day, two years from now, and you may be trying to refinance, and the value might be a little bit different because just at a sign of the times, you're going to be like, well, it, it you know, well, remember two years ago we said it was ten thousand dollars lower or whatever number it was, and we were there to try to have your back, right? Which is ultimately as, the day, as much what, as you want the house, right? Of course. Now uh, we're closing in here on the thirty days. You're going to get me a commitment letter, which yep. I'll be sending over to the listing agent, and this says that there are no more conditions on the mortgage. Yep. So the, that commitment letter, think of it as a halfway point, like a, like a checkpoint that is basically saying appraisal is good. You know, we're going to be doing a final verification of employment. Make sure you finalize your insurance. Like who are you going with, with your, as your insurance provider? Uh, so a variety of different potential check, checklist things that need to be, to be finalized. And that's all listed in section four of the commitment letter that you're going to send out that we're going to send out to you and which then you kind of pass along to the listing side to kind of give them a uh, reassurance, a sigh of relief. Like, Hey, we're on, we're, we're, we're moving forward. We're on the finish line, you know, the finished part of the race. So we're going to send that to you. Sometimes you get that much sooner than 30 days. And sometimes for whatever reason, you might get it on that, on that date. Um, but that's important to get it. Uh, for all parties to kind of like, let, let them take that breather of like, hey, we're, we're moving along pretty good. And then from there, you're kind of just finalizing the the final pieces of the puzzle to work toward the closing date. Again, whether that is the closing date that's on the contract or maybe we backed it up a couple of days where you're, everyone's kind of holding their hands working to that, to that final time. Now, you'll burn the midnight oil to get this done, but you like to get these documents in a few days before all the 
So again, it's, right. it's important that they get these documents. That way, we're that's not just up against it, right? And that's just constant communication, setting expectations with all parties. You're setting it with the buyers. You're setting it, you and I. Uh, the, the 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 selling side. You're setting expectation with them. Setting it with the attorney's office. That when somebody is asking you for something, we're not just asking you for it just for you know fun. Yeah, it's something we need. Sometimes you guys ask for the same document twice. And that could be a source of frustration for people, but yep. I understand sometimes that's just going to a process and that's not even going to the same place or person. Well, I'll give you, so I'll give you an example. Is I've already submitted my bank statement. Well, maybe on your bank statement it says pages one of four. And you only gave us page one. You want Any underwriter is going to want to have page two of four, three of four, and four of four. Okay. So, you know, again, setting expectation. When you send over a bank statement, make sure it's all pages. Don't make it a screenshot because sometimes you'll send a screenshot and it doesn't have your name on there. It shows the amount, but we don't know who it belongs to. I know who it belongs to because you emailed it to me. So make sure that it has your name, account number, all pages. So that's bank statement. Um, 101 pay stubs I sent you pay stubs 30 days ago yeah but now maybe it's a longer closing maybe it's a 60 day closing you always want to have fresh information in the file so keep sending your pay stubs over until me or the processor says hey we're good we don't need any more pay and the same with bank statements I sent you my bank statement yeah but the bank statement you last sent me was April 1st through April 30th we need maize. Right. You know, so you're keeping updated stuff in the system. So that sometimes happens a lot where you're kind of asking for duplicate documents. Maybe it's just because we need fresh ones in the file. Maybe we're missing a page or maybe it's cut off. That feels very much like maybe what's really happening here. Because right. when I hear about it, I'm like, really? The same document? Yeah. Okay. That would yeah. make more sense. I need all four pages of that. Most often, sometimes is that's the case. Um Naturally, has it happened where maybe you sent something to me or you sent something to the processor assigned to the file and maybe they were going through their emails and maybe they deleted and they, maybe they tapped twice and maybe you deleted a, uh, an email and you're like, and you go back to your deleted message like, you know what? You're right. I did have it. Sorry for asking you for again, but you know, that's just human error. We're not asking for a duplication because we just like having multiple. <laughs> right. You know, right. We already know there's a lot of paperwork involved in it anyways. <laughs> there's no need for any more. And again, I think that's important for people to understand that. And and I say this all the time, Chris, and, and I, I, I think you're of the same mindset. You have a question, just ask it. Yeah. I want you to understand this process. This is a complicated process. It's the biggest purchase that you'll make unless you're buying another house. Right. It's, it's your, it's yeah. your next, be- next right. biggest person, per- <laughs> purchase. And, you know, and, and anybody should act like this, and I know – you know, we all do is if ask the question and if I don't know the answer, I'm going to go to somebody to get me the answer, which then I'm going to relay it back to you. Yep. You know, no one guidelines are constantly changing. No one knows everything. You know, so if you ask me a question on a on a scenario on maybe maybe your job history and how you get paid or what have you. Yeah, it might take a little bit longer for us to get you that approval. We might have to do a little more due diligence up front, but to give you that reassurance of okay, I'm not going to have an issue later on down the line because I asked that question. 
or I got the answer for you that I couldn't unfortunately maybe answer to you, but it gives us smoother sailing. Chris Sawyer from Animac Home Mortgage. Thank you. Again, I mean, the, the mortgage process, I've been a realtor for 16 years now, and we've been through like three major changes yeah, yeah. Uh, in the process and how it works. And sometimes when I'm working with clients, their parents are involved, and it was way different back then. And so, again, I feel like this kind of stuff is helpful just so people know what they're getting into and what their process looks like. Um, I appreciate you coming on and uh, and laying this all out and being so honest about yeah. things. I think this is really helpful. Well, it's, I mean, it's it's important, especially, like I said, guidelines are constantly changing, knowing what you need. You know, we just got out of a pandemic, so stuff made, you know, guidelines change with that. You know, we're kind of like getting back to, you know, regular transactions with less paperwork and such. But uh, it's important to kind of like, lay the groundwork out and then see the direction we have to go. And again, it just allows everybody that reassurance. And we will have a part two to this episode with our real estate attorney friend, Larry Garfinkel, who will explain all the stuff that we couldn't explain in here. The other things that are happening, the title search and whatnot. We'll talk to Larry about that uh, as we get to the final closing table. But Chris has gotten us our commitment. So we're good to go. Into the closing table. We'll see you at the closing, buddy. Thanks so much, Chris. Joel, appreciate it, man.